back four years ago, it was all, we're crawling. We're defining basic kind of stuff and what needs to be done. There were no tools. Today, we're kind of walking. We're at the early stages of walking. Before we get to running, it'll be another five years. And there, it will probably be so slipstreamed into everything we do, we won't even recognize. Welcome to the Medical Device Innovators Podcast. On this podcast, we explore ways to accelerate developments and get your medical devices to market faster and more efficiently. We engage with industry professionals that are changing the game and talk through the processes and challenges shaping medical device development in the current day and age with ever-shortening timelines and budgets. This episode is brought to you by System Insight Engineering, a leading innovator in leveraging computational modeling and simulation to reduce time and cost in getting medical devices to market through insightful design decisions, data to support regulatory approval, and clarifying understanding into device performance. System Insight Engineering helps you to better your bottom line so you can help more people faster. Find out more at sieSimulation.com. Here's your host, Arlen Ward. Welcome to another episode of the Medical Device Innovators podcast. I have with me today, Christopher Gates. He works for Valentium, which we'll get into what Valentium does. And we're going to spend most of today, I think, talking about rather hot topic in medical device software, the cybersecurity side of things. So welcome, Christopher. Thank you for having me. So you've literally written the book on medical device cybersecurity. I'm not going to exclude my co-author, so I literally co-wrote the book. Oh, perfect. Okay. And Axel Worth, who has been in this industry a very long time as well, he's also a subject matter expert in this. Very good guy. Jason Smith, who he's from my company, Valentium, and he really has helped us with the book. Axel and I were always, we come out of things from different perspectives. Axel looks at it from the HDO, the health delivery organization aspect. And I look at it from the device manufacturer aspect. So it's always fun when we butt heads. And Jason was frequently our referee on these. So the three of us, it worked out really well. And it has been a lot of fun creating the book. Most importantly, the book has really done what I wanted, which is I'm on a goal to change my industry. This is my quest here is I hate going into manufacturers when I talk to them and they know next to nothing or even worse, they have myths about cybersecurity. Like, oh, once I compile my code, nobody can read it. Oh, good God. Okay. <laughs> Let me introduce you to a decompiler. Here you go. And I'll start showing them. They're blown away that you can do that. Yes. Yes, I can. Once I get access to your executable, all of your secrets are mine. Okay. And so there are things like that. So what to do, when to apply it, how you speak to the FDA. This is all the things we've done in the book. And the book was the first step in trying to educate my industry. And it works really well, by the way, because now when I onboard a new client and they hold up the book and they've got you know, post-it notes sticking out of it and all that, that engagement, I already know, that engagement's going to go so well. They already understand. They know they've been level set. They understand what needs to be done. So that was the first step because I've been tired of the level of ignorance in the medical device industry. So that was the first step. The next step is I've now stood up a series of video training for medical device manufacturers. And it's a 60 hour certificate class where you can take your engineers and they get to watch at student paced levels. And they are completely brought up to date on what they need to do, how to do it, everything from regulation to governance, to cryptography, hardware, software, it is very OT 
focused as opposed to IT focused. And so we've had really great success with that. And it's very happy with where that's going. That's the next step. Also, as part of that, also have a senior leadership, which is a two-hour training, not a 60-hour training for engineers, but a two-hour one to give them an idea of what is it they should be looking at, where do they want to put their money, how should their organization be reporting to them so they understand where the posture is. And so I think that's needed as well, too, because if you don't have senior leadership support, it doesn't matter what your engineers know. You're dead in the water. You're not going anywhere. You're going to have extremely insecure devices that are easily taken over, and you're going to have a lot of problems with the FDA and other regulatory agencies going forward. Your role within Blendium is related to this in terms of the cybersecurity side. What else does the company do? Well, yeah, I was brought in seven years ago as director of product security to create the cybersecurity wing of Valentium. But that's just the one thing we do. Valentium is a medical device realization consultancy. So we are a registered medical device manufacturer under 1345. And we help our clients come to us in whatever they need. Now, this could be a startup company with only a couple of people in it. And we go through and create everything from you know design history file all the way up through. And we even can transition into manufacturing. We have a large manufacturing facility in Houston. All of everything that can be firmware, software, mobile apps, hardware design, custom hardware design, you name it, we do it all that is needed for realization of your product, even test equipment, stuff like that. Well, cybersecurity was a natural fit for them. It was another one of these isms that you need, just like user experience, okay, that you need to put into it. It's a very dynamic one and changing more than UX is these days, but it's one of those things that's tough to get a hold of, make certain you align with all the requirements, and, oh, by the way, get value from it by actually making a secure device. So I was brought in to do that. So literally, it's easier to tell you what Valentium doesn't do than it is to tell you what isn't, which is we don't do give regulatory advice. Now, I'll talk to you all day long about all the different cybersecurity regulations and all that. But if you're looking for somebody to get regulation, either domestic or international advice, we work with King & Spalding, the legal outfit, the worldwide legal arguably the best authority on this. They're amazing. And in fact, if it gets into weird stuff I don't understand, I'll reach out to my friends at KNS and say, hey, this is a weird one. You know, how does that play out? It's like, so that's literally the only thing we farm out. Everything else is all done in-house. It's all done domestically. So we don't ship your intellectual property off to questionable countries. And we're here to help you. Sometimes, like I said, that's the entire thing where we do everything. Other times, We'll have very large companies, and we have the largest companies as clients, come to us and say, yeah, we just want you know a mobile app, or we just want firmware done here, or we just want a production tester, or some little puzzle piece out of the larger puzzle. And we're good with that too. We're good to help people out. So we're here to help you realize that product and bring it to market as quickly as possible. So most of what we wanted to talk about today is in the cybersecurity realm. This in the circles I'm in has been a topic that's been growing in popularity over the last year, for sure. What do new medical device companies, those that have been doing this for a while, what do they need to know about cybersecurity at kind of a very high level? Well, back in 2014, so nine years ago, the FDA first came out with their pre-market guidance on cybersecurity, which is... It was very insightful of them at the time. Nobody else had done this, not for medical devices, not for any critical infrastructure industry, nothing. There was no, they were it. They were the leader by far and still are. 
So kudos to the FDA for recognizing the need. Sadly, that initial document back in 2014 was basically said, you should make your medical devices secure. We like puppies, unicorns are cute. You know, it's, it gave no concrete guidance or expectations from the FDA of what the manufacturer should have done. So then we had in 2016, a post-market that talked about our cybersecurity responsibilities. Post-market, a much better document they'd learned. By 2018, they came up with an even better replacement for the post-market document. And then in last year, 2022, in April, they came out with the largest guidance yet. And it basically has a tremendous increase. We went from about the creation of eight cybersecurity artifacts up to about 38, potentially, depending upon how your system's structured. So a lot of extra activity, a lot of extra work in that document, even increases in post-market. We're now talking about periodic, and that turns out to be about every six months, regime of testing, fuzz testing, pin testing, reevaluating your threat model, looking at your attack surface, looking at the effectiveness of your cybersecurity mitigations, all of those things. We're also, of course, post-market doing software bill of material, SBOM monitoring. That's really an ongoing basis. That's not even six months, that's daily, where you automatically look at new disclosed vulnerabilities and see if they intersect with some of the components you're using. Software components. Think Log4J, for instance, something like that. And you say, ooh, it's in there. So I know a lot of companies that back when Sventooth, the family of Bluetooth low energy vulnerabilities came out, they spent months going not only through their current Rafter products, but their legacy products, trying to figure out which manufacturer it was, what version of the stack was in there. You know, they burned a lot of money. So just to figure out if they were or weren't affected, S-bombs, it's instantaneous and it's ongoing and it's dynamic. So you literally look today and you go, oh, yeah, oh, I've got these three products out here that potentially are affected. Now you do your root cause analysis on them and see if you really are. That's the kind of approach that's happening now these days. So lots of changes have come up just from that alone last year. And then near the end of last year, there was something in Congress that you might have heard of called the Patch Act. The Patch Act was going to be coupled with the user fee bill, and it was going to give legal authority to the FDA to enforce cybersecurity. They've always claimed that right under safety and efficacy, their original mandate. But this now was going to do it. Well, it because of political reasons, it was actually loved on both sides of the aisle. But because of getting the user fee bill out in a timely fashion, they stripped all writers off and just got that through. So then a version of it migrated over into the omnibus appropriation. So what does this mean? It means on December 29th, it was signed into law that the FDA is now responsible for ensuring the safety and cybersecurity of medical devices. And it's amended to the Food and Drug and Cosmetic Act. That went into effect on March 29th. It also gave the FDA complete authority to define what that looks like and how they implement it. It also directed them to work with CISA for an ongoing annual cadence of updates to cybersecurity for medical devices. So the two of them will work together and update these standards. In other words, it's not going to get easier. Okay. This came into effect three months after it was signed in on March 29th and is in effect now. Now, if you do a 510k submission now, this is the friendly period. And you may have read in the literature that it's been postponed enforcement till October 1st. That is not true. It came into effect on March 29th. 
if you've got a 510k that is in process, they're going to expect to see those things. Not only that they called out in the omnibus bill, which are quite light, but figure they're going to ask you about the April guidance from last year, because that really is the FDA's expectations currently. So that is what they're going to work with. This is their friendly period, quote unquote, when the reviewer will say, oh, you have omissions. You don't have, you know, your threat model here. You don't have your security architecture views here. You don't have your third-party software components being analyzed. All these things are missing. They're going to push back from you. And just like any other 510k submission, you then have 180 days to fix it and prove to it you fixed it, or else you're going to drop out of the queue. You're going to be rejected, just like any other change, any other omission on the 510k. That's the friendly period. Coming October 1st, a couple of things happen. First off, ESTAR cuts in October the 1st. All 510Ks will now be electronically submitted. No more paper, which I love. I can actually remember in the days past, pallets of paper being sent to the FDA. So I'm pretty happy with that. That's a good thing. But why are they doing that? Well, they will also, in that time period, update the refuse to accept checklist. This is where the clerk, when he gets a 510K submission and looks through and says, oh, do you have your you know, product plan? Do you have your hazard analysis? Do you have you know, the usual things? So they go, it's a checklist. They go down. Well, it'll be updated to include all these cybersecurity artifacts, and now it'll be electronic, so it'll be really easy to do. So at that point, your submission won't even reach a reviewer. It'll be rejected for cause all right, within 15 days of your submission, and you then have to go through and create everything and try to resubmit it. So is it weird? Yes, it is. If you see anything from the FDA, by law, they can't say they're working to the draft guidance from last year. They have to say they're working to the finalized guidance from 2014, by law. But unfortunately, that leaves the wrong impression because they are working to that guidance from, 2014, from 2020, not 2014. And they try to always stretch 2014 out. Say, well, we said this, which really meant, no, just tell you, but they can't. So once the 2020 April guidance is finalized, somewhere between October and the end of this year, supposedly, and there's a lot to update in that guidance, once they do that, then they'll be able to point to that one and say, that's what we expect, okay? And it'll be a lot clearer for everybody. But in the meantime, all this is changing. There's a lot of wheels in motion right now. So it's very confusing for manufacturers, and they don't understand where they go. Literally last week, I had one of my clients say, we're not going to work to that. We're only going to work. We're going to send in these four artifacts on our submission. And I'm like, okay, don't say I didn't warn you. This is what's going to happen. And it's like, that is very clear. So for those of us who work closely with the regulatory agencies and the people and all this, and we have lots of clients doing a lot of interaction with them, we get to see this and know what's going on. If you're working in a medical device manufacturer and you submit a new 510K or PMA, you know, once every 10 years, you don't see this change. So yeah, get ready. It's going to impact your budgets. It's going to impact your timelines. It's going to impact your submissions. What was optional and some manufacturers thought they could ignore since 2014, but sometimes they got away with it. That's no more the case. They're not going to get away with it. There's not going to be, you can't ignore it. You're going to have to secure your devices and prove that you secured it. So big changes this year, big changes. And we're not done. We're just getting started. That leads me to a whole bunch of questions, but I'm going to kind of back up a little bit and fill this in as we go along. One of the tools or methods that you mentioned was SBOM. What is an SBOM? 
software bill of materials. Great story behind that, which is about five years ago, I was working with the Department of Commerce Division in TIA. And there was a great guy who was working there at the time, Alan Friedman. Alan is probably the best person I've ever seen to organize highly intelligent, egocentric experts herding cats. You know, he's amazingly good at it. And so he was working there and I was working with him on a, how to update devices in the field standard that they created, which was still the best document out there for a 20,000 foot view of what's needed to update devices in the field. So as we rolled off of that one and we finished that up and published it, he said, hey, Chris, my next one that I'm working on is going to be the software bill of materials. I said, well, what's that? He said, well, it's like an ingredients list of all the things in your product. I says, okay, that's going to be like a week, two, maybe a month to do. No, that's not much of a project. I mean, that's pretty... Well, that's because I was an idiot and I didn't realize all the nuance that goes into this. So, like I said, that was five years ago. They started up these working groups for software build materials, SBOM. And the FDA was heavily involved because they had, in their 2018 guidance, said they wanted a CBOM, which was software and hardware build materials. And they've since kind of abandoned that, fortunately. And it's just software build materials. It is literally an ingredients list of things you use in your software product. So libraries, frameworks, operating systems, communication stacks. It is not the compiler you used. It is not the workstation you compiled it on. It is none of that stuff. There's actually a separate one coming for Cyclone DX, a standard for SBOMs called Formulation Bomb, which is kind of cool. It tells you how do you make this thing. But that's the Formulation Bomb. Not there yet. Real soon, months away from that. But an SBOM is literally just the components that went into it. Those libraries, frameworks, operating systems, communication systems. Those are the things that you include in there. Why? Well, it serves two purposes. Your customer can now set their own appetite for risk. So they can use these machine-readable files, XML and JSON, to compare against known vulnerabilities and say, oh, you're using OpenSSL 1.1.f. You're susceptible to heart bleed, or you've got log4j. And so you can look at this literally automatically, rapidly, and determine if in a product you have in your institution, you have a problem. And then reach out to the manufacturer and say, is there a workaround? Is there an update? What is this really vulnerable? I see you have this vulnerable component. Or you can go over and unplug it and you know stick it in a closet or feed it to a wood chipper or whatever the heck you want to do with it as an end user. But you now know there's a risk. And the reason for this is because manufacturers create these devices and they sell them into a marketplace that then takes and incurs all the risk. If your health delivery organization, your HDO is taken down by ransomware, manufacturers are hurt. Oh, that's a shame. That's a real shame. We feel sorry for you. Okay, so the risk is all being bared by the customer here. So the customer needs a way to look at this and understand what their risk profile is and try to get a handle on this. As a side effect of this, this is increasing the coupling between the dysfunctional relationship of the HDOs and the MDMs. <laughs> it's always been that way. And so that's nice because now there's getting to be more, I expect this sort of cooperation from you in the future. And it's being signed into contracts. There is literally templates for contracts. The Health Sector Coordinating Council created the model contract line, 45 clauses of what HDOs should be putting in their contracts for cybersecurity. So good stuff. 
anything that increases that level of responsibility and communication between those two entities is a good thing. So S-bombs are really great that way. And then the other use of S-bombs is in the manufacturer themselves. Like I mentioned, the Sventooth issue. You as a manufacturer on a daily basis can look at this and go, oh, these product lines were affected by a brand new vulnerability that was just discovered. And let's go over and see if they really are, because maybe they're not, but we know they're at risk of that. So then we do a root cause and come up with mitigations and force out new updates if need be, or we tell our customer base, no, we're not affected by this. Yes, it is in there, but it's not affected. So S-bombs are all that. It is executive order here in 2021 that was for the 16 critical infrastructure industries of the United States, of which medical is one of them, but it's also transportation, gas, power generation, all of those things are all affected and they all have to have S-bombs now. So lots of interest in it. It is one of the biggest topics right now out there in cybersecurity in general is the two big ones are threat modeling and S-bombs. So big deal. And that gives you an opportunity on you know that post-market side to run it every six months against the new list of vulnerabilities and flag things that maybe were there during development. So in that April guidance, you have to do those raft of tests, penetration testing, fuzz testing, updating your threat modeling, malformed inputs, blah, 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 blah. There's about a dozen different tests that need to be done every six months. S-bombs, however, it's not really a human activity. It's not like you've got a spreadsheet and you're comparing them, which would take you forever, because you may not just have tens, you may have tens of thousands of software components. Some languages are like JavaScript or huge for these things. So it has to be done automatically. So we have a lot of tools out there right now, MedCrypt's Heimdall, Cybellum, there's open source packages that will do this for you automatically on a daily basis. Okay. And so S-bombs, the duty cycle is much easier to perform, but it's also much faster. So you're looking at this. Cool ones will automatically kick this out and interact with you know, Jira, for instance, and say, this needs to be root caused. So you can actually create whole chains of operation and activities just because you've now discovered that wait, we may have a problem here. So we are in an interesting phase of S-bonds. Back four years ago, it was all, we're crawling. We're defining basic kind of stuff and what needs to be done. There were no tools. Today, we're kind of walking. We're at the early stages of walking. Before we get to running, it'll be another five years. And there, it will probably be so slipstreamed into everything we do, we won't even recognize. We'll go out and get Log4j, and with Log4j, we'll be getting the JSON file that will also have all of the its components that will merge into ours, and it's just part of the package manager or however we're getting it. Today, it's, it's a bit cumbersome. It's a little more manual than it should be. It's not completely streamlined. But again, crawl, walk, run. We're going to get there. We've come a long way in a short period of time already. So it's kind of cool. And it really does help everybody understand what their risk is. So if I, let's see, if I am developing a new device and it doesn't have Bluetooth, it doesn't connect to the internet, do I need to worry about any of this? So fun, funny you'd ask that. Occasionally, every so often, I get a client that comes in and they're in the concept phase. They're just talking about it. And immediately, everybody from a sales point of view wants every communications medium that's ever been devised. 
oh, I'm going to have Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, Ethernet, cellular. And it's like, well, let's talk about RF coexistence testing. <laughs> You've got $300,000 in testing there for all those radios. But besides that, do you really need all those? And I've had a number of these early, early on projects where they come back and because of talking to me, they've came back and went, you know, we really thought about this and went, wait a minute. These are generally startups, by the way. We're going to go out with a completely sequestered device with no communications. And I mean, no ASCII, no serial, nothing, no USB, nothing coming off of this and then get some cash flow and maybe in a future version, we'll add in Wi-Fi or Bluetooth low energy or something like that, which I love that approach. I think that that really makes sense. I frequently find that a lot of these interconnects are poorly thought out and they are a marketing feature. Ooh, it's great. We can hook into their infrastructure. Have you really thought it through? Okay. I like that, the fact that they're doing that. So yes, you can go there. At that point, it reduces your level of work down tremendously. So you can literally go through and do a couple of pager explaining how there is no communications at all. You then need to talk about the risk of user authentication. So it's a ventilator. You don't want somebody coming up, adjusting the title flow on the title volume on this thing. You, know, <laughs> you don't, certainly don't want the patient doing it. All right. So how are you doing user authentication and controls of that? That's always an issue. But as long if you cut down all of the rest of that, you certainly remove all of that from a regulatory viewpoint. It simplifies it tremendously. So it's definitely something to consider. The other aspect to this that the regulatory agencies don't care a whit about, but a manufacturer might, is twofold. Is there intellectual property in here that you spent years in a laboratory or clinical studies getting that somebody like me or my brethren are going to attack and pull out all that intellectual property in minutes out of your device? And therefore, we can become a competitor and use your own research to be your competitor. Also, is there some sort of consumable product here, like a sensor or a sheath or something there that has, you know, part of your business model that says, oh, you get to use this continuous glucose monitor for 72 hours, and then you have to go to our next one. Well, there are people who do a couple of things there. One is re-enabling them. This is actually a huge many multiple millions of dollar business in the United States. Nobody ever talks about this. It's huge. Okay. Used to be decades ago, only third world countries. Today, it's a huge business in the United States, taking somebody else's product and re-enabling it and putting it out there. So when a user is using it, the inpatient, they see the original company name. Does that refurbished device still work as well as the original? I don't know. There may be something chemically about it that gets used up. There may be some you know, contamination issues that's there. There's lots of things you got to think about. So there is that. And you're losing money as a business because now your product is not being sold again as your business model expects it to be every 72 hours. It's being sold by somebody else and somebody else is making the money. So enforcing cybersecurity is really all about protecting the manufacturer's business model. Part of that is safety and efficacy of the patient. Part of that is getting it through regulatory approval. But some of it is we don't want counterfeit devices. We don't want people re-enabling our devices. We don't want people going over and stealing our intellectual property. So we feed that back always when we're working with our clients. Here are the safety and efficacy issues. Here are the issues that are purely business-related. 
And sometimes, depending upon the client, they're interested in one more than the other. They're willing to risk the second list a little bit more. Than- well, I'll let you decide how that plays out. To be honest, I get them in both directions. I love the ones that come in and are interested in the safety and efficacy. I always try to tell people, this device may be on you. This device may be on someone you love. I've seen this, witness this firsthand, actually, years ago, many years ago. A grandchild of mine was born preemie, and he was in the NICU. This is a children's hospital, Orange County, Chalk. And they weren't letting the parents in and certainly weren't talking to the grandparents. NICUs. I walked into NICUs all my life. I'm not afraid of your security. So I tailgated my way into the NICU and walked around to all the isolates, found him, and then looked at all the equipment, looked up the attending that was there. And I said, pneumothorax? She goes, who are you? And I says, I'm his grandfather. She says, how did you know? I says, because I mean, that, that, and that piece of equipment. I know what the settings mean. From then on, I was always allowed into the. <laughs> they didn't mind me in the NICU. In fact, they used me to communicate to the rest of the family what was going on. By the way, he's fully grown now. He's in a nursing program. He's doing great. So, but yeah, so that's when you make these devices, realize this could be you. Okay. It happens. Another fun story here. Last year, I was at DEF CON here in Vegas. I live in Las Vegas, by the way. It was over at the DEF CON conference, a security conference. And I'm in the medical device room. Somebody comes over and says, does anybody know anything about, and named a particular manufacturer's insulin infusion pump, body work. Well, I knew this one. I created the security program for that particular pump that they mentioned. Uh, well, why? <laughs> why? Why do you want to know that? Yes. It's just, well, I've got a lady outside and they're having a problem. So I said, okay, I'll go out. So I went outside and talked to her. Turns out it wasn't that manufacturer. It was another manufacturer who I hadn't created their security program for. So I felt better. But this guy walked into one of the rooms and his insulin infusion pump bricked immediately. And it had a Bluetooth low energy interface. And he was with this lady. They had carted him off to the hospital because he was getting lightheaded. And I told her, I said, well, first off, what is he doing here with that? But if you've got something keeping you alive, don't come to these shows. Secondly, if it's external, if it's not an implant, if it's an implant, don't go to those shows. If it's external, get a bag. There's isolation bags that you can get Faraday bags for cell phones and stuff. Put your insulin infusion pump in it, okay? At least make it challenging. (laughs) It's like, I'm sure whoever attacked it didn't even know they were attacking it. They were probably just running a normal across the board attack a Bluetooth demonstration and saw this when he connected to it and devastated it, right? Killed it. And then I said, and thirdly, have him carry around manual injection. Okay. I mean, no matter how good this is, it's equipment. Equipment fails. Okay. He should always carry manual injection, not rely upon emergency services. So that's the kind of a thing that can happen. I mean, there was a guy, he was interested in security, but he actually got taken out because he was also a diabetic on a fusion pump. It matters. It really does. So for a new company coming into this new idea, maybe a startup with no experience in this area, what are what are some things that you would recommend that they think about, maybe document going into it even before they come talk to you? You put it backwards. That's the first thing. Come talk to me. That's the first thing. That's the first thing. It's never too early. In fact, just now, here starting last week, one of the clients was with another company that we worked with them. And he went to another company and they are so far, they're pre-concept. They're really at the early days of this. 
And the first thing he did was engage with me and say, let's start talking about our topology and what that's going to look like and what phases we're going to release this project in and how this is going to grow. And that's literally what we did. Why? Because it's so much cheaper, so much easier, so much more flexible if you do it that way. If you come to me and say, hey, I want to ship next week, you're going to hate me because I'm going to bring you nothing but problems. But early on like that, I'm going to solve all your problems up front. We're going to be good friends as I am with this individual. And it's like, we get on there and laugh and talk about it and say, okay, we'll do that. And I help him do processor selection and stuff like that, that will make this easy for them, literally cheaper and faster and make it much more secure. Whenever you bolt on security at the end, it's always more painful, more expensive, more impactful to the user, and actually not as good as security. It just is. It's just the way it is. It's not designed in. So these days, the FDA is looking for that designed in. They don't want that last minute, oh, I need to fix this thing because they know better. The FDA has gotten very smart. They've hired some really good people. They've gotten some really good education. They've gotten more consistency across the board than they had for cybersecurity. So now there are some people there. Dr. Suzanne Schwartz, Jessica Wilkerson, Matt Hasler, Afton Ross. These are all people, top flight, okay, out of the FDA. You can talk about any of these subjects with them as a peer, and they'll understand completely what's going on. They may understand how you do it in an organization, but they understand its importance and what it consists of. So really good, really good. So don't think there is ignorance from the regulatory agencies. They are not. So they are looking for this, and they're going to really hold your feet over the fire. Once we get into post-October, there will probably be some, the FDA has a new thing called focal point where they are training people to be experts in certain aspects. Cybersecurity is one of them. And so when a reviewer gets something like this and has any questions about cybersecurity, they can reach out and tag these folks and have them come on to take a look at this submission. So not only are you getting somebody who's looking at all aspects of a medical device, but now you've got an expert who comes in and it's going to look specifically at cybersecurity. So there's no BSing your way through it. There's no saying, oh, I'll do it next release or don't worry. Mm -mm. No, it's not going to fly. So a lot, a lot of changes, a lot of interesting stuff. So it needs to be on the list from the very beginning as far as it does things to get done and questions to get answered and all of that. Okay. Exactly. It starts First day, and it runs all the way through till just prior to release because you're looking at the software components you use and all that. But there are things we do. There's literally what we're doing, and this is different from IT, by the way. IT, you're looking for cybersecurity. You're trying to detect a breach, respond to the breach, figure out what the impacts were and close that, right? That's literally what you're doing. You're saying, I'm standing here and I, I've discovered my front door is open. Now, what did they steal out of my house? How do I close my front door so they don't open it the next time? We don't do that in medical companies. We look at that and go, how is it I can make that front door so they can't ever open it? Maybe I don't need a front door there. Or maybe I need a fault door there. Maybe I need something cryptographically strong. So we do it differently. Well, because of that, we're looking for vulnerabilities. There are three places in development or create vulnerabilities, the design oh, I'm not going to authenticate this other device that's connecting to me. That's a design mistake, a vulnerability. Implementation. When I coded this, I didn't check the buffer length of the input buffer from this communication stream. And then lastly, in the use of third-party software components, your SBOMs, your libraries, frameworks, operating systems, communication stacks. 
those can come in with vulnerabilities in them already. They're going to affect your device. So those are the three areas during development that you create vulnerabilities. Different tools and techniques are applied to each one of those areas, such as threat modeling up front for design vulnerabilities. Then we do code reviews, analysis, testing, fuzzing for implementation vulnerabilities. And then for software components, we do SBOMs. We do some analysis work on those components if possible, not always possible to see if there's obvious vulnerabilities on those as well too. And if we can mitigate them or get the manufacturer of those components to mitigate them. Those are the three biggies. That's what you look at during development. Now, there's activities up front like supply chain. There's activities downstream like how do you transfer to manufacturing? How do you do updates? How do you do incident response? How do you do coordinated disclosure? Lots of other stuff. But during development, those are the three. Any other advice for someone that's starting down the panel? Don't think this is going to be insignificant in budget. It's not. With the older guidelines that we were working to for years, the engagements were 100,000 under for everything we had to do kind of approach, okay? Depending upon how complex it is. You know, if it's a device and a phone, that's pretty easy. But if suddenly you've got a lot of pieces and stuff, it starts getting much bigger and much more expensive. Today... We're up around a quarter million dollars for cybersecurity for every one of those engagements. And it's actually been a problem. That's why I'm trying to get the word out about all these changes that have occurred, because I don't want my bid to a client to be the first time they're aware of the fact that this has changed. And so it's like, no, it has changed. It's dramatically larger. I mean, going from about eight artifacts to now about 38 artifacts that you have to submit in your 510k submission package. That's a lot. Okay. That's a lot of extra work. They're not just to write the report. It's the work that has to go ahead of it before you write the report. So there's a lot of extra work that's there. This comes at a cost. It also brings up the whole topic, which is everybody loves to run away from, which is, and who bears that cost? Say, hey, how is this going to get passed along? How is this going to happen? That's always ignored. Nobody wants to address who pays for this. So ultimately, it's going to be the manufacturer, a startup. It's going to have to absorb that. They're going to have to make it back over the you know, intervening years, just like the rest of the NRE that occurs when creating a new device. But it does increase the level. I won't argue that at all. So good question. Okay. So if someone wants to get a hold of you, what's a good way for them to do that? Oh, reach out to Valentium.com and you can reach out to our sales organization there through the website. And you can also see things like the training that we're putting on there as well. But that's a kind of a one-stop shopping place to, to reach out to me on. We'll start going and have an initial talk and find out if I can be of assistance to you or help you scale things down one way or another. It's fun. Those are always the fun ones. We enjoy that. We love to see the innovation. And ultimately, that's where I want to get us as an industry, is we get back to doing what we do well, which is improving the quality of life. The fact that we have to take this deviation is sad that humans are this way, but we are, and people will attack you. Bad things will happen. There are bad people out there. There are people who have no empathy. There's all sorts of Examples of intercepted communications from hackers basically saying, F the hospital, children's hospitals, by the way. Mm. Lovely, lovely. Okay. Mm. 
and they don't mind that they're going to wipe them out. I mean, so we need to get back to doing what we do best, which is helping people and improving the quality of life. There's no doubt that connected medical devices does that, but it also incurs a lot of extra risk because there's a lot of bad people in the world. And so we have to get this to a point where it is just part and process of creating a medical device. It's strain blind in. It's not this weird exception we've been trying to adopt or worse ignoring for years, but it's just streamlined in so we can get back to doing what we do best, which is helping people. And as we get into more connected devices where we're collecting data and using that for training AI systems and all the other things that are in development and coming out now, this is only going to become more and more of an issue. It is. And in fact, AI, well, one of the worst ones, there's what are called side channel attacks. Side channel means you're not looking directly at a thing. You're looking at some secondary artifact. In most embedded systems, what that means is you're either glitching the power or general purpose IO, or you're monitoring the power. And by monitoring the power and doing differential analysis, you can back out security keys. Like if you're doing a comparison using a string intrinsic function, or you're moving it from one place to another, you literally walk down bit by bit and go, that's a one, that's a zero, that's a zero, that's a one. That's, and that's your key that you use. Okay. It's that easy. This device costs $20, by the way. Anybody can run it. It's called Chip Whisper for those who want to play with it. It's, it's great. Part of the education, we walk you through it, show you how this works. And because we teach you that if it's that easy to hack, this isn't a nation state level attack. Okay. This isn't the GRU attacking you or the NSA. This is dysfunctional teenagers in their basement. So if it's that easy to do and that cheap to do, you need to address that. So we show you how to first, we show you this and make you understand it. Once you have that realization, then we show you how to prevent these sort of attacks as you go forward. And it just means you have to do things a little differently. Well, ultimately, we'll have that all streamlined out. And we won't have to be as addressing each one of these as this strange one-off. It's like, that's just how we do business. And then we can get back to doing what we do best, helping people. Helping. Yeah, perfect. Okay. Well, thank you very much for being on today. I know that it's a fast-changing landscape. But if we have this conversation again in 12 months or six months, it's going to be a bit different even at that point. So I would certainly encourage anyone that has a device that in any way is connected to anything to reach out and get that information early. Because like you said, making changes early is way better than, you know, finding out that you can't, you can't submit when you want to. Absolutely. And if you do want to make that device connected in a future version, still talk to me early on because I will talk about how to position yourself to make that easy. You don't want to spend the hardware. You want the hardware to have it there. You just don't want it functional at all. So how do I do a firmware update out in the field? Believe me, it's not easy. Okay. <laughs> it's actually extremely challenging. There's lots of edge conditions. How do you do that? So you want to see, this is where I want to be. This is where I'm coming into the market initially. How do I make that so I can easily upgrade into that? So things like that. Engage with us. We'll help you out. Excellent. Well, thanks again, Chris. It's been great. Thank you, Arlen. Good talking with you. Thank you for listening to the Medical Device Innovators Podcast, powered by System Insight Engineering. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.
This episode is brought to you by System Insight Engineering, a leading innovator in leveraging computational modeling and simulation to reduce time and cost in getting medical devices to market through insightful design decisions, DART to support regulatory approval, and clarifying understanding into device performance. System Insight Engineering helps you to better your bottom line so you can help more people faster. Find out more at siesimulation.com.